the first 19 no's, I was like, I have this product and it's amazing. And I tried all this other stuff. And finally I was like, look, you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur, take a chance on me. And he said, okay. And he, he wrote me a check. What is good, everybody? This is Michael Zakond, founder and creator of Our Future. We're the go-to podcast and media brand for young professionals such as yourself to help you unlock your future. And today I have a pretty crazy guest for all of you right now in the studio looking across from me on Zoom, and it is Mr. Mike Evans, the founder of Grubhub and the founder of Fixer.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, great to be here. The, the idea for Grubhub, I mean, did it come from you being hungry one night in, you know, as a, as a busy dev? Or was it from the, the movie, the, the net or whatever it was called? Like, like, tell me about how the idea popped into your head. Yeah, I wanted a pizza. And uh, that's it. So is that a wrap? Should we finish? Should we? That's yeah. all. That's that's Yeah, I wanted a pizza. I mean, or we could just order uh, a pizza no, right now. Yeah, it's more than that. Um, I wanted a pizza, and and uh, at the time, the technology, the the technology that existed was basically the phone book, right? And you know, the phone book, you can't filter by cuisine, you can't find out who delivers to you. So what started out, it really just started out as a, as sort of a guide to discover who delivers to you. And it's funny because now that's like that's that's not even innovative. You can find that from eighteen different services. But at the time, it was the only place that was really focused on. Um, where are you? And we'll find the restaurants that deliver to you. So, uh, so that was the start of it. It didn't even start with online ordering. Um, it started with that just to be able to find who delivered to me. And then, and then as time went on and I was trying to make a business out of it, you know, I started with, okay, well, I've got this delivery guide and I charge subscription service fee for it to restaurants. It was a pain in the ass to sign up restaurants to subscription service delivery guide. Um, so I signed up like a hundred of them and it took six months. And I was like, I have to sign up another hundred restaurants to double my revenue. And restaurants go out of business all the time. About twenty five percent of them right close now. every year. Yeah, especially yeah. right now. Yeah, certainly in the, in the midst of a global pandemic, it's even worse, right? So, um, and so I was like, you know, maybe if we switch this around and changed it to a per order fee, I could like focus on on search engine marketing and search engine optimization and all of those things that are like sort of digital consumer right. acquisition paths. And then I don't have to just be good at sales. Uh, and so I started taking phone orders. I didn't know this at the time that the phone system I was creating would be the subject of the ire from the New York Attorney General, several senators, uh, class action lawsuits, uh, just the hatred of the restaurant industry, like generally, which is what the phone system has become today. At the time, it was just a great way to like track how many orders a restaurant was getting. Um, and then it was like literally like two years into the business when I when I was trying to sign up a, a bagel shop on on these phone orders and like I don't want phone calls and I was like well what if I fax you the order and I was like oh maybe I could have like people enter that online and just fax the order to the restaurant and then like it was like a facepalm moment where I was like why did I not st why did I start with phone calls like that it's clearly a bad idea like once I realized what the good idea was got it got it I right, so. Yeah. For, for the audience, right, they're interested if they haven't yet and launching their own businesses, especially, you know, through the lean methodology. Um, so you had the idea. I mean, how long did it take you to, to code up a minimum viable product? I mean, how? how I mean, like a night. A night? It was like one night. It was like yeah, one night. I, yeah, I was I was stuck on the 151 bus on the way home uh, from my, my software job. And it was like crammed tight in the middle of February. It was one of those days when all the slush was on the side of the windows. And like I was smashed into the armpit of the dude next to me. 
And I was like, I can't cook tonight. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to code this idea I've had for like the last six months. So I coded up that version of it. And then within a week, I'd signed up the first restaurant, a paying customer. Because the difference, I mean, if you're talking about lean methodology and the difference between, first of all, the difference between a hobby and a business is somebody pays you money. Right. But first of all, get actual customers who actually pay you things. Market research, where you ask people, hey, would you pay for this? It's totally useless because everyone says yes. And then when you say, will you please pay for this? Nobody says yes. <laughs> like, Start with the second question. Start with actually charging people. And so that's what that's what it was. And the minimal viable product was a was a delivery guide with a subscription fee. All right, all right. You knew this moment would come, and here it is. A quick word from our sponsor, Verb Energy. In 2015, three college kids at Yale decided they wanted to combine coffee and snack bars. Yeah, the perfect late night snack. You know that Ivy League workload is hard. So they created Verb Energy Bars, which have just 90 calories and have the same amount of caffeine as an entire cup of coffee, but there's no crash. There's no jitters because it's all based off organic green tea. I love to snack on verb bars in the morning, getting my podcast interviews ready. No time for breakfast gets me that energy boost without that burning empty stomach when I'm just drinking coffee. It's awesome. So the bars come in delicious flavors like salted peanut butter, vanilla latte, and double chocolate. And verb will ship you, the listener, a starter pack for just 12 bucks, 50% off with promo code our future. So go to verbenergy.com slash our future to get your starter pack. And if you want to learn the full story, the founders of Verb appeared on the podcast in episode number 111. So go back and listen to the full story. Back to the show. So you built the minimum viable product, but you were also boots on the ground, went into these restaurants and pitched yourself, pitched this completely unknown brand to these people. I mean, that must have been a, a ride in life, man. Just getting in front of these independent entrepreneurs, yeah. restaurant owners. I mean, you probably learned so much about humans and yourself. I did, I did the first, I did the first, like, man, that first sale was, uh, it was hard. The first sale that I got, I, I probably got like kicked out of 20 restaurants before somebody finally said yes. And you know, the difference between the no's and the yes, the first 19 no's, I was like, I have this product and it's amazing. And everybody's like, GTFO, I don't like your product. <laughs> And then the 20th person was Pisano's Pizza and Pasta was the first restaurant Pizza I signed and up. Pasta. Yeah. And it's Pisano, literally it's Pisano's. I mean, it's as Italian as you can get, right? Like old school Chicago, like uh, supper club kind of a place. And I had tried all this other stuff. And finally I was like, look, you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. Take a chance on me. And he said, okay. And he, he wrote me a check. It had nothing to do with the product at all. It was an entirely a relationship sale. Uh, and then probably the next 10 restaurants I signed up were just that. That was what the pitch. Well, like I started, that was the pitch. You know, yeah. people are getting pitched on stuff all the time. But you were like, yeah, I'm a scrappy entrepreneur. I got this product. Like, give me a shot. So first of all, if you're a salesperson, you can take the fact that people don't like to be pitched and you can completely ignore it because you're, you're a, it's your job to do it. Like, it doesn't matter if people like it or not. <laughs> That's totally irrelevant to, to an effective salesperson. Um, you pitch because you have a product that's going to be valuable to them, even though they don't know it yet. Right. And if you've actually created a product that creates value for them, then you don't have to feel guilty about that. You go for it. Um, and then it becomes a numbers game. If you get rejected, so it turns out you get rejected a lot more on the phone, on a phone pitch, like a phone sale than you do in an in-person sale. And I learned this, you know, going from a hundred restaurants to a thousand restaurants, I learned that you know, if I walked into a restaurant, by the time I really got my cycle home, my sales cycle home and had the product a little bit 
you know, two or three versions past the MVP. I could sign up probably 80% of restaurants I walked into, but it still took two hours. And the only time I could do it was between one and three between the lunch and dinner rush, right? So I could only sign up. Were you still working? Were you still working a full-time job? No, no, I quit pretty, I quit uh, with pretty quickly after the first sale. Um, so and you then it was money like, and you were just like, I'm going to go full. No, I didn't sell thing. money. I made, I, I lost so much bucks. money. No, I made a hundred grand as a software engineer. And then that first year after I quit my job, I probably made like 20 something. Like it was terrible. I didn't, I didn't, I stopped paying my school loans. I just, I just like, I had 200 grand in debt from MIT and, and from my wife's uh, law degree at BU. And I just stopped, I just stopped paying the loan payments. <laughs> Like, I just was like, whatever, I'm going to pay this through 2036. Do I give a shit if it becomes 2039? Like, it's, it's, it's a ridiculous amount of money I owe on my, my school loans. Like, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to pay this off. And so I, I quit and then um, took a much lower salary. And, you know, and when I went into restaurants, I literally would also ask them for free food. <laughs> like, I'd be like, hey, can I take home a pizza? And they would say yes, because I was... I wasn't like metaphorically hungry, like for business. I literally needed to sell to eat. <laughs> so you know, that's, uh, a lean, that's, a lean that's a lean entrepreneur right there. I just saw like a documentary of you guys on, on Inc. And it was like, you know, the early days of the business and, and everything like that. I mean, it was wild. What was it like to, uh, to, to be in Chicago uh, during kind of all the hype in Silicon Valley? I mean, you know, was it hard yeah. to attract talent once you started to hire people? And, you know, how did that entire atmosphere kind of shape the way the business went versus these other Valley companies you think were popping up? Yeah, I think there's two, there were two huge advantages to, to starting a company in Chicago. The first was um, the cross-section of, of demographics, like that, the demographics of Chicago are a cross-section of society in the rest of the United States, like from a race and ethnicity and affluence perspective, Chicago looks a lot like the United States. San Francisco does not. So if you if you build a product in San Francisco that really works in San Francisco, all you've proven is that early adopters like your shit. It doesn't <laughs> help. If you can get, and, and I was building a consumer brand where I needed to get a, millions of people to use it. So I needed like average everyday Joe to like it, not like, not the guy who's thinking about his software options his, yeah. his, his software company options or, man, and, or no man no man bun monday no uh no uh weekend yeah. yoga none of that and even uber went through this because uber's original product was a high-end black car service yeah. and that didn't work for average joe in in, in chicago it just didn't right. so the first advantage of chicago was that the consumer demographics matched the rest of the country the second advantage was that the software developers and really any of the experts that we hired they're a lot less mercenary than they are in the valley people stick around through ups and downs. And so one of the things that's a real challenge in, in Silicon Valley startups is that like the, the path to success is very rarely up and to the right the whole time. It's, it's jagged. Like you have down days, you have up days. And in the Valley, you have a lot more mercenary employees who on the down days leave. And in Chicago, that didn't happen. People stuck with us through, through challenges. And it really helped because we didn't have a lot of the turnover and cost associated with people relearning their jobs. And that helped us accelerate. So I, I think those two things were a big advantage. Funding was a little bit harder, um, but ultimately like we got on a plane and got benchmarked to invest. Right. So it, it, you know, at the time we got, the time we had the benchmark term sheet, we had, a, we had term sheets from Benchmark, Sequoia and um, Battery Ventures all in hand at the same time, which makes for a great negotiating position, by the way. No, it does. Um, 
Yeah, it was so it what it ended up being not that hard to get financing. How much did how much in total did you end up raising? Uh, eighty four million total. Eighty four million. That's a good chunk of change. And well, you had already fourteen cities uh, on three million. After it took four years on three million investment, or well, I I ran the business for for three years without investment, bootstrapping, doing lean lean startup methodology. Yeah. Then we took three million, got into fourteen cities, and were profitable at the end of that. And then we raised. Um, 81 million, but that, that was the launch into the IPO. That right. was well after the business had been proven out and it was the national right. expansion and brand building. And the and IPO, the IPO valued the company at 2.1 billion, right? Uh, is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. The, it, it was around two and then it, it got up to like 11, 14. I actually don't remember. Uh, and then came back down a little bit. Gotcha. But public valuations are a whole different world. Yeah, from, and I mean, mad, mad respect, mad respect. I mean, three years bootstrapping a food delivery business. Could you imagine any of these modern gig economy companies being able to bootstrap their operations for the first three years? I mean, it was a big advantage because we just had a head start, right? We had a head start on everyone and the stuff that we had to do, like Google Maps didn't exist. So we had to write a geocoder to turn addresses Actually, into Right. Wow. Like download the US census data to write a geocoder. I probably should have just created Google Maps, by the way. A better business. AWS didn't exist. Right. So we had to create our own servers. Like we had to actually buy the hardware. And so, like, there were, but those things, the difficult things early become advantages if you do them before anybody else does them. Right. And so, um, that hard work, the, the, the difficulty of bootstrapping, it really was a, was a big advantage in terms of, um, we had, there were a hundred competitors that you don't know about, right? Like people talk about DoorDash and Uber Eats before that there was Groupon and living social. Um, so, okay. So you did all this stuff early, right? You were the first to kind of do online food delivery, right? You were the first to do it. Why, why did, no, we weren't the first, we were the best. The, you were the best. You were the best. I mean, you went through the entire team. Other- there were literally 20 other companies that were doing the exact same thing I was doing when I was doing it. So it's a revisionist history to look back and say, just because we were first, we won. There's a real fear among entrepreneurs that like, if I don't do it quickly, I'm going to get killed. And actually it's wrong. Like if you don't do it well, you'll get killed. Being first, like Yahoo was before Google, right? Excite was before Yahoo, right? There's all these, for any one of these unicorns that you see that's successful, there were, there was, there's actually one of our competitors, Seamless. They launched a black car service four years before Uber did, right? But it didn't, it didn't go anywhere. So like there, there's, they, they were a food delivery service, and then they launched a black car service, which is a, that's a weird thing in itself. But like, um, and you talked about the Palm, and then you know Apple, right? So I mean, there's a yeah. lot of, a lot of. So the feed first is overrated. Hundred. Okay. Well. Okay. You did well, right? You did this whole thing well. Yeah, then not, why not got? You're not complaining. I mean, and you bootstrapped for three years. So you probably had a pretty damn good stake in the business. You negotiated on really freaking good terms with VCs, really, really good terms because you had built a thing. No, I did not. I had no idea what I was doing. I got killed on the terms. You got killed on Uh, the terms? I got killed on the terms. Everybody knew who you were. Everybody already knew who you were. Yeah. Just oops. Whatever. Sorry. I I I think a a multi billion dollar (laughs) IPO was good enough for you. Did you buy anything after you went public or no? I quit and rode my bike off into the sunset. I think it was like 19 days after the IPO, I was riding a bike across Virginia. It was really? magical. Everyone Dang. should do it. Did you, uh, how did it feel that when the IPO happened and you were suddenly your net worth was way up? 
Yeah, I mean, um, so I wrote a book about this. It's it's being published next uh, in probably in January of next year. It'll come out on the shelves uh, by Hachette. And um, I talk a lot about this issue, like what it felt like to go through the process. And and it's interesting because like most people from the outside, they see the dollar signs and like that 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 looks like a like sort of the 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 brass ring, right? But it's at the end of an eleven year journey. And during that journey, I had to give up ever more control of the company as it took a different direction. And as I left, the company was really pivoting hard into gig economy and in what I consider a very exploitive, exploitative way. And I, and I think that the company is exploitative of its gig economy workers today. And that really bothers me. And so on the one hand, I'm really happy that it had the IPO and I got the cash. On the other hand, I could have probably stuck around and directed the growth of the company in a different way. Like it just, you bet Bezos said, said famously, your margin is my opportunity, right? Like creating a low cost competitor to, to Grubhub and DoorDash that, um, that allows the restaurants to, to pay a lower percentage fee and any, any consumers they bring to the marketplace, um, they don't get charged for. There is a wide open opportunity to compete with, with Uber, Uber Eats and DoorDash and Grubhub on, on that particular thing. I'm not going to do it because I already did, I already did it once, and I have no interest in re-entering that industry again. But I, I think that all three of those companies are massively open to competition right now. Um, uh, anyhow, I, I think that's an interesting take. So you're you're in the gig economy game right now. I mean, I won't even call it the gig economy game because I feel like you don't even like that term. But you are running Fixer.com, which you started after Grubhub, which is uh, what is it? Grubhub for your yeah. So your Fixer plumber. is it? Yeah, let me tell you. So Fixer is a, a an, an on-demand and scheduled handy person service. And our competitive differentiator is that we have a W-2 employee base as opposed to gig economy contractors. And the reason why is that the supply of skilled workers uh, in the trades is greatly outstripped by the demand and the problem's getting worse. So what we do is we train people from scratch in an in-home training center. Uh, and then we, because the training is expensive, we retain employees as opposed to a gig economy model. How many people do you have at, at uh, fixture.com? And how many well, cities just started? We're only 50 people. Okay. Uh, we're 50 people in one market. We're launching Dallas in, uh, by the end of February this Not year. Chicago. So are you in Dallas or in Chicago? We're in Chicago right now. We're launching Dallas in two weeks. Uh, so it. it's February. Right now it's February 20, 2021. So by, by the end of this month, we'll be in Dallas. Uh, we'll have two more markets by the end of the year. That's great. So, I mean, how are people going about the service right now? Are people still using the yellow pages and... I don't even know if those are a thing. I don't know what those are. I mean, everybody kind of like knows like a handyman, like you go to Home Depot. I don't know. I mean, how, how are people doing this right now? Yeah, what what's happening right now is um, you have you have an uncle who knows how to fix things, or you're one of the lucky people who's got a guy, and you call them, and they might get you back, get back to you via voicemail, and tell you they can come out in six weeks, right? Or you just suffer through having stuff broken in your house and try and fix it with YouTube videos, right? So, or, so like, or a web search, right? Because there's independent entrepreneurs in all of these these municipalities running uh, services businesses for the trades. There, there are. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's true. I think that there are independent operators for sure. Um, the supply is greatly outstripped by the demand. There simply aren't enough people doing the work, um, which is an interesting, you know. One of the first lessons you learn as an entrepreneur is um, never say you don't have competition, right? But but there is a reality that in the, in the trades, there is a supply-demand mismatch. 
And so a lot of the work ends up going getting not getting done. That's not just there's that's not to say we don't have competition, but we think of I think of competition in terms of um where are the dollars being spent that I want spent on my company right now? Not who who's doing something that looks similar to me. That's a that's a sort of a juvenile definition of competition. The the share of wallet definition is a lot more useful. Where are the dollars being spent that I want spent on right. my company? And so for us, it's deferred maintenance means um, HVAC systems break down five years earlier, and so they get yeah. you know, so the so the the money's being spent with carrier or pain or one of the big HVAC providers, right? Or um, walls go unpainted for three more years. So the, so um, people are just dissatisfied with their homes to a large degree. And so they might spend that money on Netflix or they might spend that money, you know, who knows where that money's being spent right now. Um, but there is opportunity associated with the supply de de demand. So was this, creating supply. What, was this the lean startup story too, where you were fixing all the sinks and the, uh, doing all the, hanging all the paintings and stuff? Was it Mike Evans? You know, you know what I don't have to do on Saturdays right now? Cook or fix shit. Do you have so, a cook? So, what's that? Do you have a cook? No, I have Grubhub. <laughs> I made the two. I made the two services that gave me back my Saturdays. So what do you do on Saturdays now? I play video games. What like what else? Like COD. What's that? No, uh, mostly Civilization and um, really, yeah, other games. mostly strategy games. Uh, what's your what's your big piece of career advice to a young person who's graduating college right now or is about to go into college or just 20, 21? I think intentionality matters. I think it's really, really important to have a vision for where you're trying to go um, and to and to work towards that vision. And if it's not working, to change the vision. Um, but ex accepting accepting the idea of like just going into a nine to five job because that's what everybody does and you have to pay off your school debt is a terrible decision. Taking a nine to five job because you want to learn about how companies are run and how HR departments work and how company communications work so that you can take that and copy the things you like and, and innovate on the things you didn't like. That's a great reason to like the actual act is the same in both cases, right? You're still, you're, you're going to get a job, but the reason behind the two different things couldn't be more different. And so I think having reasons for why you do things is um, absolutely the most essential advice I would give to anyone. Um, that literally is the point of my book, by the way. Well, I'm excited about your book. What's it called? And it's coming out in a year from now. So we have to put it yeah. in the back our back pockets to remember, but we can always do an episode a year from uh, right before it comes out again. What's it called? Yeah, so the book's called Hangry. Uh, and uh, you can you can you can sign up for a uh, pre-order link at mikeevans.com. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the incredible entrepreneur, Mr. Mike Evans, the co-founder of Grubhub and the founder of Fixer.com. Go check out his book and pre-order it at mikeevans.com. It's called Hangry. I love the title. Definitely go check that out. And please leave our future review on Apple Podcasts if you're still listening. It takes less than 60 seconds. It really helps the show grow beyond the credibility we get from getting guests like Mike. Thanks again for listening. And I want you to do one more thing, and that is to stay frosty. Peace out, everybody. It was a blast.